When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the July edition of The Compliance Life. In The Compliance Life, I take a look at the journey to and sometimes from the CCO chair of an individual in compliance. In the month of July, I visit with Joe Burke. I've known Joe for some time. He's most recently the Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer at Quest Software. It's a fascinating journey into compliance from a career that began in a white shoe New York law firm to Kentucky Fried Chicken and to Dell. In this episode, Joe Burke moves to Quest Software and into the CCO chair. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Audrey Harris on The Compliance Life. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode in this month's The Compliance Life series. This month, I'm visiting with Joe Burke. So, Joe, first of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Joe, in this episode, you move into the CCO chair. Uh, Could you tell us how that happened? When I was at Dell, I was in the Chief Compliance Legal Chair. They call it Chief Compliance Council. And so I provided um, legal advice, really, to the Chief Compliance Officer. But even in that role, uh, I had been acting sort of as de facto Chief Compliance Officer um, for a lawyer who had a lot more responsibilities than just Chief Compliance Officer. Now, of course, all of the final decisions, whether it was self-disclosure, whether it was uh, litigation, whether it was investigation, all of that was managed by Mike McLaughlin, who was the chief compliance officer. But he did give me a lot of leeway strategically and functionally in how we built the program and how we managed things. Now, when I left Dell, I left wanting to get into a role that was more of a chief compliance officer role and so I joined Quest Software. Quest Software was a spin-off from Dell uh, that occurred just before the completion of Dell's acquisition of EMC. And what I said to the team that was recruiting for Quest uh, was, you know, this is a perfect opportunity in private equity uh, for me to step into a compliance, um, chief compliance officer role. I've got the experience for it. This is what I'd love to do. And they said, that's great. But this being private equity, we also need you to do the employment law. So, you know, it was, uh, it was exactly what I wanted in terms of the chief compliance officer role. And I learned a lot very quickly uh, about how you adapt from a company as 
as varied and as structured as Dell at the time was, a $60 billion company, stepping into a role with a company that is less than a billion dollars in revenue and has none of the infrastructure, not even a code of conduct, uh, it was a real eye-opener for me. Really, and that's what I wanted to focus on in your, your professional career. You've had some major cultural shifts due to your moves, and you talked about moving from New York City to Louisville, Kentucky, then down to Austin, moving from um, the restaurant business, if I can call it that, into mm-hmm. uh, computer business. And now you're going, as you said, from a $60 billion company to a $1 billion company. Um, did it harken back to your early days at Dell, which were so what I perceived to be go-go, or was it a different experience for you? Uh, there were some similarities to the go-go days of Dell. The difference, I think, really was even then uh, at Dell, when I joined in 1996, everybody knew Michael Dell. He'd been in every newspaper around the world, and the Dell name, I, I owned a Dell computer. And so I, I think at that time, uh, even though it was, there was a sense of instability for the, for the worker, um, you know, it took time to develop that comfort level, Quest was a different experience. Quest, nobody knew. The name was not very familiar to anybody. The software is really fascinating software, but not the kind of stuff that you can pick up, you know, at Target. Um, It just was a very different environment for me to work for a company that nobody knew, uh, that whose software was security-based, sort of uh, mid-level corporate software that nobody would ever use on their own, and they had no infrastructure. And again, I, I, I have to emphasize the point. We took the Dell code of conduct and a bunch of other samples out on the web and just basically created a new code of conduct from nothing uh, for this company that didn't have a culture yet, that really was private equity sort of spinning up based on existing software and an existing team that they had pulled together from various different places and try to create a culture and try to create an organization that can sell this software and grow this company. Um, It was different in so many ways from Dell, who had a vision. Dell had a, Michael Dell, I mean, had a mission and a vision from the very beginning. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew where he wanted to be. He knew the path to get there, or at least he had his path to get there. We had none of that at the beginning of Quest just six years ago. So did that make things exciting? Did that make things challenging? Did that give you a fulfillment or perhaps professional satisfaction that uh, you not had uh, as much at one of your other jobs? It certainly made things exciting. I, I didn't know much about private equity at the time. Uh, I certainly have learned since then. Um, we worked very closely in the early days with uh, Francisco Partners Operations, uh, their uh their operating partnership. And it was really interesting to me to see how private equity builds in that infrastructure for a carve-out company like us. Um, We made a lot of decisions very, very quickly. Uh, We put in place a lot of insurance and banking and, um, you know, as I said, uh, policy and procedural documents. And we did it at a pretty quick clip. Some good decisions, some less good decisions operationally, but we learned so much about the way our business was going to operate that when we did run into some fairly big decision-making 
shortly after that, in, in the years that followed, we, we had people standing by our side that we could trust. We knew uh, how decisions had gone badly in the past, and I think we were able to avoid some mistakes by hearkening back to some of the things that we tried to do in those first days. I think the experience was we grew up so fast, not necessarily as lawyers or as finance people or anything else, but as how does this culture work? How, what does this culture need to be successful? And we were successful in our first couple of years. We hit some pretty high targets. Um, we just, uh, I, I think the challenge we had was not having the longevity, that tenure of time together. Um, we had this uh, baptism by fire in the carve out, and then we all stood together and made decisions as we went. What were some of the challenges, compliance-related challenges? Was it third-party agents on the sales side? Was it vendor and supply chain? Was it establishing the culture that you wanted or you felt comfortable with, or was it another challenge? We had two, I would say, major challenges, more related to supply chain and um, uh, and sales, sales distribution than anything else. Uh, on the supply chain side, when we left Dell, and, and, and this goes all the way back to the origins of Quest, we had a fairly substantial um, design operation uh, in Russia. And at the time, we were selling to the U.S. federal government. And so one of the things, one of the big challenges we had was how do we reconcile those two things? The teams that we had were well-respected, very, very accomplished, very successful teams, and yet somehow we had to resolve how do we migrate away from this concentration on, uh, um, on that part of our business uh, in that part of the world. So um, that was a challenge that we could only work through over time, and by figuring out where are the right places to have this design, how do we make this transition, that was a very difficult set of uh, transition steps to work through, Tom. And I, I just have to tell you that it was only through the dedication of that leadership team uh, in addressing the needs of those employees, wherever they might be in the world, the needs of the customers, the needs of the company itself to be able to develop this software. That was a huge supply chain issue that we had to work through and work through quickly, and I think we did a really, really good job of that. On the flip side, we had inherited through Dell and through Quest itself prior to Dell a number of distributors um, that, you know, as you know, is often the case in the compliance world. You find out you have more people that want to sell your product than you really have time to vet and sort through. That was a pretty traditional vetting exercise. I would say it's not complete uh, today. It never is at companies like this. Um, but those were the two big challenges that we had was supply chain, where are we designing? And then, uh, you know, how well do we know those people that are distributing our products? And that's where we focused our time over those years. Uh, could you say a few words about culture? How did you work to establish culture? Was that really something uh, either a quest leadership and management led or uh, perhaps private equity assisted in that. How did you, I, I would just have to suppose, create a culture in, literally in a new organization? Well, fortunately for us, you know, I think uh, companies tend to hire to type. I've always said that. And, you know, the one great thing about Quest is that they had a history, even prior to Dell, of hiring 
team-oriented folks, and I know it sounds trite, but honestly, the team at Quest got along together, was more cooperative, less competitive than any place I've been. Uh, there were times in the early days at Dell where everybody was excited, everybody was having fun because everybody was making money. But it turned very competitive over time, and I think anybody that you talk to at Dell will tell you that it became very competitive. Um, Quest was not the same way, and so there was an underlying personality of the company, I think, that you know, people wanted to work together, people wanted to see the company move forward, but not you know, step on each other on the way. That helped quite a bit. I would say culture was very difficult to create on top of that because that leadership team came together uh, very, in a very short period of time after the announcement of the acquisition. In fact, there had been a team being put together prior to the closing of the acquisition of the sale. Uh, and then that team was replaced by private equity just prior to um, finally closing the deal. So there was a little bit of consternation, I would say, among that uh, employee population about who are these new folks coming in. It took a little while to create that culture. But again, I think the overwhelming sort of um, collaborative, cooperative, drive together nature of the Quest population really helped that leadership team manage through uh, some years where, you know, Dell is, or sorry, Quest is somewhat siloed, where we have a bunch of different business units who are all out there kind of doing their own thing, building their own products, selling it the best they can. To get those guys to come together really required those employees, particularly the shared services of legal, of finance, of HR, to work very closely together to apply rules, policies, and et, et cetera, across the entire team. That helped create a collaborative culture among administration that allowed the team to move forward. You said one word earlier that I wanted to follow up on, and it was a connection with, uh, I believe, the private equity owners. And that word was trust. Um, I don't think the word trust gets enough play, uh, but I was wondering if we might end with some of your thoughts on why uh, you think trust is so important, particularly when you're dealing with uh, the owners of the company, such as private equity. Yeah, again, I, it's something that I uh, teach and preach uh, extensively uh, in my class at Fordham, that trust Again, we, we read about it, we see people talking about it. It is so core to what we do as compliance people. If your coworkers can't trust that they're gonna be treated in an appropriate way when something goes wrong or when something goes right, you lose credibility. You lose the ability to achieve the goals that you're setting out as a compliance officer. If leadership can't trust that if they invest in this or that program or effort, there is going to be a result, there's going to be a benefit, there's going to be a protection, uh, then you can't get the result that you want. Trust ends up being so core to everything you do, every communication, every email that I would send out, I would have to look at it from the standpoint of, if I were on the other side receiving this, what would my impression of the legal department of, and of compliance be? Because I need this person, even if I'm reprimanding them, 
to trust me that I'm right, that I have their best interests and the company's best interests at heart, and that I'm going to be there when they need me in the future. And I have always operated that way. I have found it very valuable in the compliance area to be somebody whose word can be trusted, because at some point, I am very likely to have to be on the other side of a very difficult conversation with that person. And if they don't trust me, I can't get my job done. That's the way I've always thought about that. Well, Joe, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I hope our listeners will join us uh, for our next episode where we take a look down the road and also visit with you about teaching compliance. Uh, But before we leave, Joe, if anyone wanted to follow up with you or find out more information about any of the topics you've touched on, what would be the best way for them to do so? Best way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. That's how I'm connected to the world. Joe, uh, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.